0: Screen Time
1: with John Fardy. This is News Talk.
2: Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, the fallout from the Oscars and what it might mean for Hollywood, according to the great film critic David Thompson. Mark Royal reviews the new Judd Apatow movie, The Bubble, on Netflix, as well as the new vampire superhero movie, Morbius. Plus, the director of the inspiring new documentary, Young Plato, all about an Elvis-loving philosophy teaching school principal in the Ardoyne in Belfast. I'm open on Twitter. John underscore Fardy. Or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all and I hope you've been enjoying this late spring sunshine. Got a bit colder, but, you know, it was sunny. God bless it. Now, the uh, Oscars. uh, It was... Incredible, uh, shocking. You know, last week we were talking to Tim Gray about who was going to win and all that kind of stuff and, you know, the hosts were going to be and little did we know the world would quite simply be taken and shocked by one man uh, and the terrible act of violence that Will Smith committed against Chris Rock. Now, I have to say what Will Smith did was appalling, shocking and violence just can't be condoned. And as I'm always telling my three-year-old, you can't hit anybody. And it was awful to see. And, and this, you know, spectacle that supposedly celebrates the magic of movies, to have it descend into that was just awful. The only caveat is I, I do feel bad for Will Smith because he felt, you know, that someone was attacking his wife about a medical condition that they've probably lived through and, you know, maybe cried about, and he saw red. Uh, And I'm not justifying it, but I get why it might have happened, Uh, and it really shouldn't have. And I really wish he had have said something in his speech about Chris Rock. Now, I don't think Chris Rock should have made the joke. That would have made things a lot easier, but that's what people like Chris Rock do at award shows. And Chris Rock is a very funny man who clearly needs no protection from the likes of me. But uh, a very sad way for the Oscars to end up. Now, outside of that, uh, the awards, probably no huge surprise. I was disappointed Will Smith won for King Richard. I always was going to be because I knew he was going to win. But I do think Benedict Cumberbatch was the worthy winner of Best Actor. Everything else I could live with. But that, to me, was kind of a travesty. But anyway, such is life. It was great to see Kenneth Branagh pick up one for Belfast. And he gave a lovely speech. Now, staying with the Oscars, I am delighted to be joined now by David Thompson, who is, without hyperbole, one of the world's best film critics. Uh, so says John Banville. He was on this show, I think it was last year, for his fantastic book, A Light in the Dark, A History of Film Directors. But he's probably best known for Have You Seen, A Personal Introduction to a Thousand Films, and also the new biographical dictionary of film. Now, I'm talking to him because only last week I saw a piece in Esquire where he told that the Oscars were pretty much dead on their feet So I'm really curious to know What he makes of what happened Sunday night And the state of Hollywood in general David, how are you?
1: I'm good, thank you
2: What did you make of the goings-on on Sunday night?
1: Well, I thought it was one of the messiest Most confused uh, Oscar broadcasts I'd ever seen And I think that that says a great deal about the insecurity of the Academy and about the rapidly changing relationship between the movies and the audience.
2: Yeah. And just, and I want to get to that because I know you have strong views on where cinema in general is going and how the Oscars might reflect that. But in terms of, you know, Pretty much most people have thought Will Smith was clearly wrong to hit anybody, particularly someone who was presenting an award. I presume you think his behavior was pretty reprehensible.
1: I think that he was in a very tense situation. He was favored to win the Oscar. He's a man in his early 50s. He's made a lot of money for a lot of people in the movies without having that's sort of ultimate recognition. So I think he's very tense. He's with his wife, and they're both very much on camera. They've got central seats, and we're looking at them. And, you know, um, many marriages are turbulent, and I think there's has been and can be, fair enough. So he's an actor. He gets carried away by the moment. And I think he behaved very badly but kind of comically badly, if you know what I mean. The whole interaction with Chris Rock felt like a bad movie. (laughs) And, And I'm not saying that this was arranged or anything, but these are people who sort of are so much into the habit of living according to a script that I think it's hard for them to be authentic and will smith tried to be and he behaved horribly and as it is now revealed the academy knew that at the time asked him to leave the proceedings he did not leave the proceedings he refused to go when he spoke at great length he didn't apologize to chris rock I think the Academy would have been perfectly within its rights to at least withhold the Oscar that evening. Yeah. And -hmm. and I just think that the general public, if they're watching, and of course they're watching in far smaller numbers than was ever the case before, but I think the general public says, this really is a tawdry affair, this Oscar show. It used to have glamour dignity, and it was something that a mass of people tuned into and were excited about. The audience has fallen off so fast Mm -hmm. that now it's really hard to justify it as a sort of major television event.
2: And what about, like, on the side of the Angels with the Oscars, that for all its flaws, and, and this is a point I make, and I'm curious what you think about it, were it not for the Oscars? a light would not be shone the same way it is on movies like Belfast from this part of the world or Minari last year or Parasite the year before. Like, do you not see a benefit to the Oscars outside of the, you know, stage show of it? And I mean that in every sense of the phrase.
1: I think you're right. I think that, let's call them fringe films, not mainstream films. I think fringe films... Have done very well at the Oscars in the last maybe ten years, uh, and that's good for those films. It was it was gr- it was great to see Branna giving one of the few good speeches of the evening. Um, I thought, and um, the trouble is that the Academy wants the most popular, most successful films to win so that the, the, they can tell themselves that the audience, the mass audience, is there and wants to tune in to the show. I think the Oscars ought to be now a much smaller show. I would take out a lot of the attempts at glamour and entertainment, and I think it would simply be drawing attention to the best films that have been made, and a lot of very good films are being made. And that's a show that could send some people away saying, well, I never really heard of Belfast before, but it sounds interesting. You would show more clips of those films. And I think that could do some great good.
2: Yeah. And listen, I have since we spoke about eighteen months ago, I've quoted you once or twice because you said this great thing about how you thought the last four episodes of the previous season of Ozark was the best movie of, of the year, that year being yeah. either twenty, twenty yeah. or twenty one. And in a way, I I sense like with your dismay at the Oscars, it's really a dismay at the movie making machine. And and I think you're probably more forthright in that than when last we spoke in that you think cinema is, is possibly in trouble.
1: Oh, without, without doubt. I mean, um, the cinema once was a genuine mass medium and in very difficult times, like the depression, world war two, it held the public together. It served an enormous purpose. That's past. Um, COVID, I think, has taught us that a lot of us would sooner sit at home in our living room on the sofa, watching, binge-watching, masses of episodes of what can be, not always, but can be remarkable long-form series on television. I do think, and Ozark is one example of this, but I do think a lot of the best work being done for the screen now is being done for television series.
2: Mm-hmm. I am a massive fan of things like The Soprano and The Queen's Gambit and the idea of these mega movies on TV. But I have to put it to you, though, I mean, some of the happiest moments of my life, and that's not an overstatement, have been going into the darkened room watching something on a massive screen for the first time, having no phone, being sometimes, you know, with the woman of my dreams, now later in life, being with my children. Like, is there not still a place for that experience? Maybe there isn't, but I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed that you might think that might be on the no, way out. I, I,
1: think, I think there is. I mean, I do think it's perfectly possible for a big, spectacular film to be made Hmm. Uh, this last Christmas, uh, my wife and I, our son and his girlfriend, we went to see West Side Story. We oh, were wow. all a little dubious. I actually saw the original West Side Story on stage. So I'm very attached to the tradition of it. And we saw, well... It can't be as good as our memories of West Side Story. We thought it was a knockout. The four of yeah. us were rocking and laughing and going with it. And we had a great time. It's exactly the kind of great time you're talking about. In the dark, with people you love, people you like, seeing something that really takes you out of yourselves. That can be done. However... The general public stayed away from West Side Story in masses, and I don't know how you get around it. Uh, The films that a mass of people go to see today, and there are some, I don't think are very good. Now, maybe I'm old-fashioned. Maybe I'm 81, which I am. Uh, Maybe I'm just a, a stick in the mud. But those films don't do very much for me that doesn't mean that there aren't some films that really take you aback and you think oh my god this is what how great the movies can be
2: but you certainly think there are less of those movies being made
1: i'm afraid there are yes mm-hmm. yes yeah,
2: fascinating to get your take on it let me go back to the beginning by way of closing would it be too bold a, a, a statement or, or or, sorry too bold an act to take Will Smith's Oscar back as the horse bolted
1: I, 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 I would feel very bad about taking his Oscar back I think it would look petty and spiteful I think that in general the audience likes Will Smith. They're fond of him and his pleasure when he won, albeit clouded by the events of his own doing. Uh, I, I think I think he should be officially reprimanded. And I, I would like to see an apology on television. Maybe he's done that. I'm not quite sure.
2: He hasn't as of yet, anyway.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I don't wish him any ill. And I think he behaved in a moment of hot feeling and temper and rashness and recklessness. Uh, And, um, you know, it's part of the increasing petty violence in life that has been going on in the last few years. And it has to do with the massive violence that's going on in Eastern Europe at the moment. There's not a direct link, but I think we all feel that authority is losing control, and we're becoming rougher and more violent, and more impulsive, and, and those are very dangerous tendencies.
2: Mm. Again, it's a fascinating parallel you draw. And listen, very finally, then David, is you mentioned you're 81 years young. Yes. Is there is there another book in the offing?
1: Yes, certainly is. <laughs> And I, 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 what exactly? I'm doing a book at the moment about acting. Okay, and I'm, I'm in, enjoying doing it very much.
2: And when should we expect that to hit the show uh, About
1: a year from now.
2: Okay, well perhaps we might talk then again, I'd David love Thompson.
1: To. I'd love uh, to. Yes. Thank you
2: very much for talking to me.
1: My pleasure.
2: That was the great David Thompson there, who John Banville and indeed Pauline kale said was the best, best writer on movies in the world ever. So there you go. Uh, And it was great to talk to him, although not a very sanguine take on the future of cinema, but delighted to get his views on that. And also, of course, the Oscar controversy. Now, things were a bit backwards this week. I usually begin the show by telling you what I've been watching on TV, but I wanted to get to the Oscars. So without further ado, this is what I was watching on TV this week
1: the bus? I'm going to buy the Lakers. Ah, no kidding. Welcome to sunny Los Angeles. Great for tans. Tell them to win the championship one of these days. Shit for fans. We are trading in an empire of real estate for what? The entire league is on the verge of bankruptcy. Shut up, Frank. Dad, I want to work for you. All right, let's have an interview. Summer draft. Right, the Lakers get top pick. Right, so who do I pick? It's easy. The show's stopping. Local phenom, urban magic. Do not use that nickname in this house. She say
2: magic, the devil's work. The devil can't hoop like me though.
1: Do they even have churches in Los Angeles?
2: Now that is a clip from the show on Sky Atlantic or Sky Showcase. I'm not sure. It's on one of the Sky channels. No, it's Sky Atlantic. But you see, it's it's all downloadable now on the Sky package a lot of people have. So it's out there. Very easy to find if you have Sky. And it's called Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty. And it's about the Lakers, the basketball team. And don't worry, you need to know nothing about basketball. There's not actually a huge amount of basketball in it. It's its not like a documentary about basketball. It's a dramatization of the Lakers becoming successful in the 80s. And this show begins kind of in the mid to late 70s. And the two main players in this are a guy called Jerry Buss, Dr. Buss, as he liked to be called, who, bought the franchise of the Lakers in a weird cash and estate deal and is this larger-than-life character who loves basketball, loves pretty young women, and one of the things he's going to do is he hires a 19-year-old college basketballer called Irvin Magic Johnson, who's played brilliantly in this by a newcomer called Quincy Isaiah. And the Dr. Bus character is played by John C. Reilly. Now, I love John C. Reilly and everything from the Will Ferrell movies to Magnolia, but this is up there with one of his best performances. He plays this wide-eye, aging Lithario who loves basketball and shows up to meetings with all these investors with his shirt open way too low with a medallion hanging and a girl half his age and tells her to sit in the corner while he talks to the big boys about basketball and is kind of a caricature, but he's a lot of passion for basketball and it turns out for women. And then you have Magic Johnson, 19-year-old, who's, if you know about basketball, will eventually go on to be one of the biggest guys in basketball ever. And it has this brilliant late 70s, early 80s feel to it, kind of sleazy, almost like you're watching it on a VHS. It's executive produced, and the first episode was directed by Adam McKay, uh, who gave us the big short and Anchorman. And there's kind of stylistic motifs of Adam McKay in it. There's people talking to the camera. There's credits out of nowhere popping up. There's these odd scenes that seem to have no relevance to anything, and then they make a bit of sense. It's sprawling. It's kind of all over the place. There's all these different stories going on about different people involved in the team. It also has a sprawling class. Jason Siegel is in there. Sally Field is in there. It sounds like it's all over the place, and it is a little, but with two episodes in, I'm so enjoying this. It's just propulsive entertainment from start to finish. It really is. It's a bit about basketball, but it's mostly about trying to get the team to become huge. And the acting is immense and the storytelling is immense. I'm loving it, I have to say. So that is Winning Time, The Rise of the Lakers Dynasty, and it's on Sky Atlantic. And man, or woman, it is a hell of a watch. Up next, Mark Ryle returns for this week's new releases. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. We turn to this week's new releases, which include a kind of vampire superhero movie called Morbius and the new Jud Apatow movie, uh, which launched on the 1st of April on Netflix called The Bubble. Mark Ryle is back. He was tending to his Vespa last week, but everything seems to be sorted out with the carburetor. So all good to return to Screen Time, Mark. How are you?
0: Hey, cowboy. How are you doing? Good.
2: Everything OK with the Vespa?
0: Well, it was, it was a new Michael Bay movie release. So as is tradition, I spent the week in a, a dark room screaming into my pillow.
2: Very good. So listen, uh, one movie I've seen, one I haven't, uh, Morbius. Let's start with that big release yeah. from Sony. Jared Leto playing a vampire superhero. Tell me more.
0: Possibly, yeah. Um, it's it's this week's Marvel Marvel movie. It, this one is Sony Marvel now, not proper Marvel Marvel, yeah, yeah. if that makes any difference. Yeah. Um, Jared Leto, he plays a ludicrously named Michael Morbius, who is a super doctor with a Jesus hairdo. And Morbius is a highly respected super doc with a Nobel Prize for inventing artificial blood. Um, He also suffers from some kind of debilitating uh, fatal blood disease. And in an effort to cure himself, he injects himself with bat DNA, which does the trick, but it also turns into this monkey rat thing with long claws and a thirst for human blood then his his bezzy mate who's played by Matt Smith he is a bit put out when Morbius refuses to share the bat DNA so he nicks some and then there are two monkey rat vampire things running about the place and that is a combination of words I never imagined <laughs> having to say out loud
2: Okay so Jared Leto isn't a vampire
0: he, I think he is
2: Okay okay <laughs> In this movie, we should say, just not to trouble the news talk defamation lawyers.
0: <laughs> yeah, facts, Fact and fiction. Uh, I don't believe that Jared Leto in real life is actually a vampire. Good, um, good, As far as the movie goes, you could call it, yeah, if you want to call it for want of a better term, I think it's some sort of a vampire thing. Vampiric tendencies,
2: um, you might say,
0: even. <laughs> Vampiric tendencies. Yeah, it's kind of more a bit uh, Doctor Frankenstein or okay. Doctor uh, Doctor Jekyll thing. Well, yeah, I, I think we
2: get the general vibe. So, yeah. what's is it? Any good?
0: In all honesty, eighty percent of this is very, nearly, almost approaching okay, nothing okay. more and nothing less. Okay, um, it's not in the least bit remarkable or extraordinary or even noteworthy. But it is not the worst thing I've ever seen either, bar some very ropey digital effects, which I'll probably come back to. Uh, my main problem with this is that it, it's just it's also joyless. I, I don't mean joyless in the sense that it's dark and brooding. Mm. I mean that there's no sense of excitement or drama. Okay. And it sets a very, very low bar and then fails to jump over that low bar.
2: Okay. Okay, right.
0: It's weak sauce.
2: It, yeah, it certainly sounds like that. And it's about two hours, so it's not, I used the phrase earlier in the show about a TV show, propulsive viewing. You were struggling to get through it at times?
0: I wasn't struggling to, It was. I was a captive audience, so I didn't struggle. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's just, it's inessential. Uh, I think uh, I should probably talk about Jared Leto. I think yeah. he's a very poor lead, um, and it's quite an off-putting performance. And he plays everything so straight and po-faced. It's almost bland. Um, I can imagine the director shouting blander, less intense at him, you know. And I don't think he's got the charm or the charisma of, say, Robert Downey Jr. or Paul Rudd. Mm. Um, and I can't really see him leading a movie. I could see him leading a cult, all right, but I, I can't see him leading a movie. <laughs> um, and Unfortunately for him, he's not even the best Jared in the movie because Jared Harris is also in this one. Oh, um, for about five minutes. Um, and even for excited. that short
2: screen time, he's better.
0: Well, of course, yeah, I wouldn't get excited about going to see Jared Harris because he's, 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 he's hardly in it. Okay. Um, Great actor yeah, though. He is, he's a fantastic actor. Um, I'd say there was, there was probably the kernel of an interesting uh, morality play in this at some stage. um, But, uh, you know, and it was probably intended to, to make this a, a genuinely different take on what's become a very, very tired and threadbare genre. Um, you know, something a little bit edgy uh, that makes us the superhero movie with a bit of horror. Mm. And um, I'd say that intention, it just gets diluted down during the development process. So what ends up on screen is, is just unremarkable. And it really is. It feels like a product. It, okay. it, it's indistinguishable from endless other similar products. And I think the, stu- the I think the studios have become so petrified of losing money that they would rather do the same thing over and over and over again and break even rather than try something different and risk making a loss.
2: Mm, interesting take. And, so guys sat around in a room and said, "Superheroes are popular. Vampires are always popular. Let's make a movie."
0: What have we got in their books? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, there's also the the the. the the, it's a, there's a combination of really poor character design and very poor CG. There's this digital effect that's used throughout, where mid-conversation, Jared Leto and Matt Smith's faces keep changing to the rat monkey thing and then changing back. And it's it's not only terrible; it, it's laughable. Um, just quickly before we finish up on this, I have to talk about the the final act which, you know, you've heard me give out about before.
2: Yes, particularly with superhero movies.
0: Yeah, exactly. But all hyperbole aside, I genuinely, truly had no idea what I was looking at for the last 10 minutes of this. Now, I could assume what was happening based on the events that had been set up previously, but I will be damned if I could make any of it out because it's just a complete mess. Wow. Mystified
2: by Morbius, eh?
0: Mystify, yeah yeah. but here's the thing right before i finish i honestly believe that regardless whoever whatever creative team is involved in any of these things be it like chloe Zhao or taika watiti or ryan cougar i think marvel have a guy who comes in 20 minutes from the (laughs) end and says okay you can all go now i'm going to take it from here and he completely wrecks everything (laughs) because the last 10 minutes of this is just an incomprehensible mess
2: what would you say stars wise (laughs)
0: <laughs> I'm gonna give it a two it's okay. not the worst thing I've ever seen but you know it's just it's 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 not essential viewing
2: okay well let's take a quick clip of the mystifying Morbius
0: you knew the doctor I am a doctor I should have died years ago people all over the world have my disease from here to find a cure we have to push the boundaries, take the risks. If you're gonna run, do it now.
1: Dr. Michael Morbius, you've been missing for two months. When
2: you're a stranger.
1: Then you were found on a container ship that washed up off of Long Island.
2: Faces look ugly when you're alone.
1: What did you do to yourself, Doctor?
2: I wish I knew. That is Morbius, which is on general release in cinemas from Friday the 1st of April. Mark Ryle gave it a pretty look too. Now, I didn't see that, but I have seen the new Judd Apideau movie, The Bubble, which is all about a group of people, actors, making a movie in lockdown. Uh, And uh, I don't think Mark really liked it.
0: I, I'm yeah. Well, I just I'm, I'm gobsmacked that you did.
2: <laughs> no, no, I didn't say. I did. Tell us what you thought of it. That, that the people uh, are here I love for a good you.
0: Comedy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, if only it's, I'd seen one yeah, this I, week. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the, the the sixth installment of a long-running sci-fi franchise called Cliff Beasts is about to go into production, and principal photography is taking place under strict COVID protocols. So the extended cast have to bubble together at a posh hotel in England for two weeks and that's that's about it
2: and they they're in quarantine and they get up to in inverted commas funny things while they're waiting to film and then the film that's happening is pretty an awful movie about kind of flying dinosaurs and stuff like that
0: yeah yeah it's it's a it's a movie within a movie yeah it's extraordinarily bad i think the best way i could describe it is imagine traffic thunder except crap
2: now you see here's the thing uh I, I I laughed at some of it. Mhm. But you didn't at all.
0: I did. I laughed once there's a YouTube clip of a monkey getting a bath, but I mean I could have gone off and looked that up on my own time. What about the Michael
2: um, Keegan-Key character who's kind of he's an actor but he's becoming this self-help guru? That made me yeah. laugh.
0: Did it? Yeah. Okay. I mean I I I didn't see the I didn't see I didn't get the joke. Um I would be extraordinarily surprised if this went into production with a finished script. Um because so much of it makes no sense whatsoever. The plot goes absolutely nowhere. Things are introduced, then they're forgotten about. There's no consistency to the character's uh, behaviour or their their individual dynamics, which seems to change from one scene to the next. Uh, A couple of them just disappear completely, I would imagine probably because the actors agreed to give Judd Apatow a week and then they had to go off and do another project. Um, Which, Which I
2: don't actually remember some of them not making it the whole way through, actually. You don't? No, but maybe that's quite telling. I would suggest
0: telling. going back to watch it again, but I mean, I, I like you, so <laughs> I will not do that. <laughs> there's there's every 20 minutes, there's a montage of everyone going mad, taking drugs, locked in their rooms. That's every 20 minutes. There's a bit halfway through where they all start dancing for no reason. It, it is just a collection of half-baked ideas and not really baked at all ideas cobbled together for two hours. Um, and I would struggle to I would struggle to call this a movie.
2: Wow. Yeah, see, I I get with you. The script is poor, not a huge amount happens. But I laughed a couple of times. I found it humorous these, you know, actors holed up in a hotel. Uh, What's what's the Spanish chap who's... uh...
0: Oh, Pedro, Pedro Pascal.
2: Yeah, I, I found him funny battling his demons and desperately trying to take one of the receptionists to bed and falling in love with her and taking loads of drugs. and So I was mildly diverted by it, but you weren't diverted at all. You were just annoyed um, by it. No, I,
0: I, I, am, I know humour is subjective, but I just can't, for the life of me, imagine anyone finding any of this remotely funny at all. <laughs> um, That's
2: a good thing I didn't then.
0: <laughs> you know, I, can't, I thought maybe if I had been incarcerated in like a North Korean work farm for 10 years with nothing to watch <laughs> Kim Jong-un propaganda videos and then I got released and this was the first thing I saw after I was released but I mean it's just we've it's got another funny.
2: poster quote it's, <laughs> it's a
0: bit that's a bit long for the poster and <laughs> it's not funny and it takes its sweet time not being funny you know for some reason only known to Apatow himself He is incapable of making a comedy shorter than Lawrence of Arabia. Um, And there's maybe I would say there's maybe 30 minutes of semi decent material here in a two plus hour movie. And it's very, very common to hear script writers complaining about having to cut out good material or, you know, cutting muscle. And that is not the case here. In fact, I wouldn't know where to stop cutting if it was me. <laughs> and I just, I, he just flat out refuses to make a comedy that's under two hours. You know, com- comedies are not two hours. A good comedy should be a tight 90 to 100 minutes, yeah. and that's it. Uh, yeah. He will probably argue that he's trying to evolve the comedy. And maybe, you know, there might be a case to be made for stuff like Funny People or This is 40. Maybe. But this is, it's, I, I, I was... It's you could. It's easily the broadest movie he's made, I think, by a long stretch.
2: Yeah, well, I I think? just have I just have a vision of I don't know collecting all these quotes in a book or. I don't know, Word of the Day, Review of the Day Toilet Paper or something, you know, the North Korean prison. Yeah, no, look, I, I think his comedies are too long, and I agree with your theory, like, you know, The Odd Couple, Groundhog Day, they're all under two hours, some of the best comedies ever made. Look, I didn't think it was good by any stretch. I laughed yeah. once or twice. But look, we're, 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 we're not going to agree on this. And I, I'm not even fighting its corner, because I'm never going to watch it again. I wouldn't be recommending it to anyone. As yeah. I say, I found it mildly diverting at times. Yeah. So what would you say, stars-wise?
0: At a push, um, I'll give it a one, but I don't don't even think it deserves that. I I will say I think Netflix is probably the right place for it.
2: Oh, dear. Okay, well, I'm going to give it two just because, as they say, it was mildly diverting and I laughed a few times but uh, Mark is starting to seriously question my sense of humour so without further (laughs) ado we better wrap so Mark is saying avoid at all costs a one for the bubble I'm saying if there's nothing else on it might work for you on a Saturday night after you listen to Screen Time that is the bubble on Netflix from the 1st of April thank you very much Mark thanks John Now, you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now, there was a movie that was released a couple of weeks ago that I didn't get to just with all that's been going on on various streaming services and Hollywood and that, but I'm really keen to feature it, and you can still see it in the IFI into the middle of next week. And it's a fantastic documentary called Young Plato. As in Plato, the Greek philosopher. And it's set in a primary school in Belfast in the Ardoyne, where a marginalized community has for generations been plagued by poverty, drugs, and I guess guns and violence. The film charts the dreams of the pioneering and deeply charismatic headmaster who loves Elvis, incidentally, Kevin McAreevy, of the Holy Cross Boys' School. Now, you may remember the Holy Cross Girls' School, the sister school, was the school at the center of those horrific. Protests against young children on the way to school back in 2001. Anyway, Principal McGreevy is deeply committed to teaching philosophy to these young people who age everywhere from 4 to 11 and empower them and encourage them to see beyond the limitations of their own lives. And we see how philosophy can encourage them to question the mythologies of war and violence. It's a powerful documentary. Its co-director is Nassani Hinnon and she also filmed it. You will know her from things like The Fairy Tale of Kathmandu, another school-related documentary called School Life which was called Loco Parentis here in Ireland and I'm delighted to say that she joins me now. Nasa, how are you? I'm great, thank you. I really enjoyed the documentary and it's an obvious place to start but did you just get wind of this really strange, really inspiring principle in the Ardoin and think we got to make a movie about this guy or was it a lot more complicated than that?
3: Um, no, it was relatively straightforward. It was my co-director Declan McGrath. He and I worked together in in uh, you know on earlier projects. Um, he was mainly working as an editor then, and then recently he's he started working as a director, and he's from North Belfast. So he, uh, it was a friend of his who told him about Kevin McAreevy and he knew that David and I had just uh, finished school life, and uh, he you know he knew that observational filming would be would be the right approach for something like this so he asked us if we would get involved so so that was how how it all started.
2: And tell me this you know with with something like this you're always wondering you know how long the cameras are on for how things are captured and all so did you just decamp to the school for a year or, or how did all that work?
3: Yeah, pretty much. The, our intention was to do to film for one academic year, um, but it ended up being a little bit longer than that because of COVID. So we mm. we we started in September two thousand and nineteen. We had to stop in March, uh, mid March, when when the COVID restrictions came in. But luckily, uh, the headmaster had written us into the risk assessment of the school. Okay. So, yeah. So when it reopened in September. Um, Declan and I were allowed back into the school so we continued filming then again for another term and then pickups in the in the sort of spring term mm. um so yes what we like the way the way I like to work is like it's it's completely immersive so before we started we negotiated to have a room in the school where Uh, Declan and I could retire to if we weren't actually filming but that we could be on site and we could be around and we could be you know spending our time chatting to people and talking to people and really uh, understanding how the whole the whole system worked there so we would have gone to we would have spent a minimum of three
2: days a week in the school for yeah the guts of that time. And did Kevin have any what did he say to you at the start? Did he say shoot what you want? Or I, I'm just wondering, he seemed so open hearted about the filming, uh, certainly from what we see on screen. Did he have any parameters?
3: Yeah, no, actually he was he was he was completely open. He gave us incredible freedom. Um, he and the board were a hundred percent behind us. I suppose because we'd had school life as well as a, as a kind of something that we could direct them to, and they could see it, and they could they understood what we meant by observational filmmaking.
2: Yeah, uh,
3: you know, they they that because it's very hard to explain that, and it's very hard to explain to people how much time it's going to take, you know, on their part how much how much time they're going to have to put up with us hanging around <laughs> so, um but anyway so we so we had that but you know Kevin and the board they were fantastic and then really it was up then to to us to get individual teachers on board and um we you
2: know
3: once we knew in the very beginning who was in and who was out then that was fine because then you can work around it so
2: yeah i um, this this is going to sound like a uh, you know, across between egomania and false humility, but I actually have a master's in philosophy and I've long be- I can tell you're hugely impressed, and, but I've long been a proponent of the idea that it should be taught in secondary schools to first-year mm. students, certainly in the Irish system as I understand it. But it never really occurred to me for primary school children. I just thought the ideas are too big. And yet, you know, people like Aristotle says it all, begins in wonder and all. And yet here's this man you know, in his 50s, able to communicate these deeply philosophical ideas to, you know, in some instances, six-year-olds. Like, can you just give our listeners a sense of how good he is at that? Yeah, I think the very
3: first lesson that we see him, or maybe it's the second lesson in the film that we see him teaching, he's teaching P1, so they're, they're four and five-year-olds. And he, he, he draws a picture of um an upside down triangle and he or a triangle and he says what's that and they all like you know oh it's a mountain oh it's it's a it's a pointy bit oh it's an arrow oh it's a shark, and then and then he draws he you know he keeps adding to this drawing and so every time he you know he adds a second peak and then they all have different ideas of what it is and 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 then in the end this drawing becomes a bicycle, <clears throat> and then he's like oh and then what is it now and they're all like oh it's a, and then he he tells them what you know did you notice that everyone had different thinking you know and mm-hmm. so and and you know and he he kind of gets them to understand you should always listen to each other's thinking and don't be afraid to change your thinking if somebody mm-hmm. else's thinking makes more sense so so from a very very early age he creates an environment where children understand that there's no right or wrong answer mm-hmm. and everybody's opinion matters and listen to the other and that Mm -hmm. those are the basic lessons that they learn you know when they're four and five and then in the film you see that by the time they become they're get to uh nine ten and eleven they're talking about bigger questions like um they're working with seneca and they're working on managing their emotions and and understanding their trigger points and and then answering questions like is violence ever justified
2: Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about Kevin because I suppose he's in some ways the center of the piece and he's such an inspiring figure. But the children and there's, you know, four or five of them in particular that we see on numerous occasions. It is beautiful. I, you know, I'm going to have to be careful here or I might start welling up again. There are moments in it where some of them are talking about, you know, dead relatives. They're talking about the diabetes that they have. It's just absolutely you know, it's, it's an oxymoron, say absolutely poignant, but it, it's so poignant at times. The children seem in those moments completely unaware of cameras. And I can't believe the level of honesty you got from some of them in a way. Is, is it your sense that's just the way children are? Cameras don't mean a huge amount to them. Well, I mean... In the beginning, of course,
3: you know we were a distraction. It was like, oh, the film crew, oh, the film crew. Now it was just Declan and I. We didn't, we didn't come in with any big sure. lights or anything like that. So, so <clears throat> we were around all the time. So after a while, they completely accepted us as part of the furniture. So we were no longer a distraction, and that's the sweet point where you kind of you work towards getting to that that kind of point, mm. and then and then you you wait until you know those kind of very intimate moments happen where. Where something you know something quite big is happening in the child's life, and uh, and you manage, you're there to capture it. So,
2: well, you certainly captured that. And just back to Kevin, then. I mean, what I like about him as well is he's a realist, even though he has a sunny disposition on the world, and and he's a fitness fanatic of sorts, and an Elvis fanatic, definitely. Yeah. But he has regrets, and he has regrets about maybe children who've gone through and, and where they've ended up, but also it's slightly hinted at maybe some of his own regrets. He mentions booze at one stage, but but yet you don't go into that, which I really like as well. Was Were you trying to keep, I suppose, his motivation or his background kind of off the canvas a bit?
3: Um, well, I, I thought I wanted to give enough uh, information to the audience to so that they had some kind of idea of why mm. he was so driven by uh, by uh, bringing philosophy to the children and why he was so driven to change their lives. So, um, uh, I, because I think you need to understand that. You see mm-hmm. this man and he's just on a mission. Um and Kevin, like for Kevin, I mean, he grew up. He didn't grow up in Ardoyne, but he grew up in Lanadun, which is another uh, working class area, which was severely impacted by the troubles. Um, and he, you know, grew up in a world where you had to fight for your existence, so um, or fight, to, fight for to, to protect yourself. I mean, yeah. every everything was resolved with the fist, but. Um, He, you know, he was never an alcoholic as such, but when he had drink taken, it was very hard for him to control his emotions. And Mm -hmm. he, he had this great sense of justice and he, you know, people people always he 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 always tried to fix things like and it would end up in in, in a in a fight so yeah he did not want to pass that on to any other child he he knew the dangers of that and um and that's why he was he's on a mission in school in the school because um you know you hear that you know that one of the kids his parents says well if somebody hits you hit them back and
2: yeah and
3: that's kind of the mantra and i mean like i know that's coming from from a a place of protection it's you know no no parent wants their child to be bullied but kevin really understood like the implications of of um of of violence and violence Mm. amongst um little boys you know becomes violence amongst boys and teenagers becomes violence with with men later in life so he you know he 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 understood the importance of catching them at this young age and teaching them very early how to Just take a step back and just think about
2: what you're doing. We were only talking earlier in the show about the Oscars and violence following you into later life. So there you oh, go. Exactly. Did you see Joe Humphreys wrote a piece in the Irish
3: Times saying that uh, Will Smith should have watched uh, Young Clayton?
2: I, I didn't. Kind of well, nice. that's <laughs> Wow. That, that's amazing. Yeah. Clearly I don't read enough of the Irish Times. But anyway, <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's, that's high praise indeed. And I agree. Listen, it's out in the world now. And to me it's essential viewing and, 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 whatever about Will Smith watching it, it, it should be shown in schools. It, it won uh, an award at the IFTAs. I think it's going to go on and win more awards. But really, interestingly, I presume Kevin has seen it. Oh, Kevin has has seen it. We, I mean, of course he has, and Kevin
3: has been on Q and As with us. Um, we did a, a small cinema release in the UK, and um, it's been in cinemas in in Northern Ireland, and they've extended uh, some of the the viewings there. The whole community have seen it. Um, the you know the kids have seen it. The parents have seen it. You know, so I mean they got they got their own private screening and. Um, yeah, and it's been really, it's 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 really lovely to see a community like our doing a good news story coming out of there. Absolutely, and it's fantastic to to you know that they they they're really proud of what their children are doing and what they're achieving and. Um, how they're making it happen for themselves. You know, they're yeah. not looking around for any kind of anybody to sort of uh, implement philosophy. Kevin's just gone right on ahead and done it himself. So hopefully other people will follow
2: suit. And presumably then, I mean, he woke up, this morning and went into school. He's still very much school principal there in our Oh, absolutely! No, yeah. he he is. Uh,
3: he he's very. Yeah, he is. I mean, he he's he doesn't t-
2: strike me as the type of man who lets something like this go to his head. Anyway.
3: Oh God, no, 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 no. That's 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 where his work is. That's where yeah. his passion is. Is 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 is, is um guiding uh, Holy Cross Boys School and and doing the best he can for all the kids that come through there. Um. So yeah, he's a, he's a committed. Um he, you know, he's, he's real deal. He's yeah, he's got the vocation.
2: You know, he's really he's the real deal. Well, it is called Young Plato. Please do keep an eye out for it. If you are in Dublin or even if you want to drive from Galway to the IFI, it is on show there till the middle of next week. It is a powerful documentary. Nessa, I'm sorry we didn't have more time to talk to you about your other bits of your career. I'd love to talk to you sometime about school life and also the fairy tale of Kathmandu. Time is against us, but I'm really keen that people would watch Young Plato because it is fantastic. And thanks a lot for chatting to me.
3: Oh, thank you very much, John. It was a pleasure.
2: One way you control anger favourite music and concentrate on the words instead of the reality.
0: Listen, that's everybody's opinion matters. And that's the beauty of philosophy. I want you to close your eyes. Picture your favourite place and go there in your mind to feel good again. Where'd you go? McDonald's. McDonald's. <laughs> violence breeds balance but you boys have the part to stop
2: a clip there from the documentary Young Plato which is still available to watch in the IFI in Dublin up till next Thursday and I highly recommend that you do it. It's a very inspiring movie. And in that clip there, you heard Kevin McAreevy, who is the principal of the Holy Cross Boys School in the Ardoyne in Belfast. It is well worth watching. And you heard me talking to its co-director. Uh, she directed it with Declan McGrath, uh, Nasa Nihinon. And, of course, she gave us other movies like The Fairy Tale of Kathmandu and School Life. And my thanks to her. That is it for this week. Next week, I think I might be talking to the guy who plays Magic Johnson in the aforementioned, much earlier show, All About the Lakers. More of that next week. Let's not worry about strangers now. I will thank someone who's definitely not a stranger. That is Anne-Marie Kane, who helped out on the show this week, as she does every week. I'll just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. If you want to get in touch with me at any stage, please do so. You can tweet me, John underscore fardy, or you can email us, screentime at Newstalk.com. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and the week ahead, and take care.